0: Well Jim, I'm just so glad you could come. hello, my hello, guest Becca. my guest today is Jim Taylor um, a friend I feel like I've been knowing forever, but it hasn't really been that long. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I moved to this area in two thousand and seven and I think I met you at that time
0: I think so. It's been a privilege to know you and your wife Elaine and um tell me. What you did as a background, I just know you more as, as Jim, my friend, but what did you do? I never knew you professionally. What was your professional job?
1: Oh, I have had a few. Uh, I, grew, <laughs> I, I grew up in Baton Rouge, and uh, I, w- I was, went to LSU. And uh, after LSU, I was drafted and went in the service for a couple of years and then uh, came out of the service and went to work as a builder and a realtor. So I was involved in the real estate business for about nine or 10 years. Wow. And then, uh, and then decided, then, then ended up in a rehab center uh, when I was in my early 40s, and uh, that sort of changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of different ways, and one of them was occupation. So at uh, at the after I got out of rehab, I decided to go back to graduate school and got a master's degree in counseling. And so that's what I've I've been doing.
0: Wow, you know, you never know what's going uh, uh, to lead you where you go. And right. for you, it was uh, a form of like needing rehab, like a form of illness, brought you to a place of bringing healing to other people.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I think. Uh, I never really thought in terms of healing before and in fact when I ended up in rehab and they told me that I had a fatal disease is what they call chemical dependency exactly um my reaction to that was anger and resisting and uh and I stayed that way for a while I, I didn't get as much out of rehab as I could have i didn't get Uh, maybe maybe the spiritual aspect of it because I was so defensive um but as it turns out as after I got out of rehab uh they gave me written instructions on how to care for myself because they say that chemical dependency is an incurable disease but you can learn to manage it so they they told me how to manage wow and um and so I, I rejected those steps, pretty much what they told me. <laughs> but in spite of myself, I never drank or used a drug again. And so um, that allowed me, I think, to begin the healing process uh, that, that seemed to have happened to me uh, over a long period of time. As I grew up in Baton Rouge, nobody ever talked about a healer you know if you were sick you went to a doctor and yeah. or not but you got well got better i didn't really consider uh uh going to a healer and except one day in Baton Rouge my friend mark suggested uh a uh, a nurse that did uh hands on healing and so i w- i went to her that was really my first experience with an energy healer
0: wow so after you did it your own way, it still worked. Well, rehab worked uh, for you in that. Yes, it you, worked. You you, you got rid of the substance. I did.
1: It, it worked in spite of me. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I always refer to it as a miracle. And I think God had a hand in that, certainly. But maybe it was everything about it.
0: So as uh, you became a counselor mm-hmm. and knew that you did it in your own way. Did it allow you to be more patient with the people that came to you who were not going to do what you said either? <laughs> yes,
1: uh, uh, that's right. Uh, th- it's very common for a person in those kinds of circumstances to get defensive. Oh yeah. Uh, when you when you tell them that they have a problem and and, and defensive in the face of a a lot of different people telling them they had a problem, family members. Overwhelming
0: uh, evidence, but they're still defensive,
1: right? overwhelming evidence, that's right. And I think maybe the reason for that is that you're telling this person that you're going to take away their primary coping skill, which is alcohol Mm -hmm. or drugs, and that can be frightening for people.
0: I used to work for um, something called the Extra Mile here in town um i was one of the first group of americorps volunteers which is the vista volunteers in service to america and we served people with mental illness people with developmental disabilities and people who had substance abuse issues or problems or addictions and um why would those three groups of people be lumped together for us to serve? What is their commonality?
1: The, uh, the the mental illness, the substance abuse, and what was the other one?
0: Developmental disabilities. Developmental
1: disabilities. Well, I think uh, a person with developmental disabilities and mental illness uh, can find their lives to be pretty stressful, and uh, alcohol or drugs is a way to cope with that. I think another commonality might be that people who have substance abuse often also have things like anxiety or depression which can complicate their recovery so the industry over time has has learned that it is important to treat the mental illness as well as the substance abuse because if you if you convince someone to stop using their primary coping skill which is alcohol and drugs they're not likely to be successful because they would still be suffering from anxiety or depression or or bipolar disorder or whatever it is
0: yeah there's a whole lot of people with the dual diagnosis and it makes sense but then you fall through the cracks because you have to be sober to get treatment and you and you and you can't get sober sometimes until you get treatment and it you it's a difficult it's it's bridging it's like who do you go to first and where can you go to rehab where they can also address the mental issues that are underneath that it's it's hard i've seen people really really struggle with that and 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 we don't have a lot of resources for those people
1: Yeah that's right it's it's changed in recent years though uh it, it, I think people are beginning to realize that almost everybody who is addicted to alcohol or drugs has a mental illness, right? anxiety, depression, whatever it is. And so in this, in, in, in this state, in Louisiana, um, I had the opportunity to work with people that were being treated in, um, in treatment centers that were being paid for by the state. And so I I have. I understand that the state is accepting of the fact that uh, most are dually diagnosed, and so um, treating both is important. Yeah, it's
0: necessary. Yes, it is. Right. I I don't. I'm. um, I, I guess I had a lot of jobs myself. I'm just, and when I worked for the extra mile, my. Um, qualifications for working was because I was diagnosed with bipolar affective disorder, so I had a living experience of that One of the difficulties I found was judgment from other people you know uh you you have to use confidentiality to certain. Extent but it's kind of like you didn't want anybody to know because if people knew you were taken, even knew what medicines you were taking They wouldn't call you back to go to work. They wouldn't send you offshore So it was a it was a fine line of supporting people who had this illness and wanting them to own it in a big way But knowing that if they owned it in a big way or public way that meaning big That they could lose their job and their ability to deal with their family Responsibilities and that was a hard thing too so did you feel people with mental illness have that kind of same kind of like social judgment?
1: Yes, I think so. Uh, and even even now when it's more freely talked about, right. I think there is still uh, that, that sort of, I guess you'd call it a stigma, that can affect uh, their ability to seek employment, for example. Uh, confidentiality in a medical setting is serious business and in 12-step settings as well. Uh, My experience is that as people begin to get better, um, they become less concerned uh, about keeping it a secret because they learn in support groups that talking about openly is better than not. Mm -hmm. And so I suppose that's why Bill Wilson in his...
0: Wisdom, uh, huh? His wisdom, yeah, <laughs> created
1: that, uh, that confidentiality.
0: There was a... a I've been able to... Um, as I started doing healing work, mm-hmm. the thing about having mental illness or substance abuse or, or anything mm-hmm. is that that may not be the only illness you'll ever have to deal with. But if you can learn to deal with that, it can help you deal with anything else that comes after that. Yeah. Uh, you know, so in dealing with... Uh, being in a hospital and having a manic episode and having a depressive episode and the ups and downs with all of that. It's kind of like after you have a few under your belt, you kind of know, well, uh, if, I, if I'm out today, then I can maybe stay out longer than before. And and so I'm sure there's a lot of that. Your own experience helps you with substance abuse, even when you relapse. Yeah. So yeah. From, for me, after I uh, started doing work for people who had um, cancer after my cancer diagnosis, having had previously bipolar and knowing I was mentally ill. And so they would kind of look at me like, what do you do? <laughs> and i would say, oh, well, I'll do hands-on healing or healing touch or whatever word you use that you thought they might understand and they're like, Well, that's crazy. And I would say, yeah, I am. And so it allowed me, (laughs) it gave me some sort of okay to continue to do what I knew may never be accepted, but that it was right for me to do. So I I wanted to ask you, after you saw the healer, how did you get into understanding more about healing? Evidently, you learned a lot on your own. And the 12-step program is like totally spiritual, without without bringing in a specific faith and i i never knew the depth of what you did or you know you're my friend i love you i respect you and 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 i see you know a lot as a as a as a man as a friend so how did you go from seeing that healer once to where you are today where you have discussions and you 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 live what you live with the whole healing thing
1: well uh as I mentioned before, uh, ending up in a rehab changed the trajectory of my life. <clears throat> More recently, uh, like about three years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, another fatal illness, which is ALS, and that that also changed the direction trajectory of my life. Um, I had to quit work because I I started falling down, and um the ALS association uh kind of happened upon them and they've been they've been wonderful for me they they provide such uh such care and resources to everybody um but uh i think about uh, let me just tell you a little story uh, after my diagnosis and uh i was still working and i was getting along with a cane at that time mm-hmm. i was resistive to most appliances people wanted to give me but my sister had sent me a cane and and luckily uh, gratefully so because I, I was able i needed it so i'm i'm going to a coffee shop one day uh, at noon on my lunch break and i'm i'm using my cane and i'm a little bit unsteady and i have to go down a curb and up a curb to get to the coffee shop and as i hold on to cars trying to do this (laughs) there were three young people in the coffee shop uh, with the window open, it must have been a time of the year when they could do that and they were entertaining people playing the violins and they saw me coming and when I got up to the door one of the young people put his violin down and stopped the music and came over and opened the door for me and told me to have a seat and asked me what I wanted to drink And that was, uh, that that stuck in my mind, and that that was um, a powerful experience for me, and it happens all the time, and I suspect that it has always happened for all of us, but most of my life I've been sort of asleep, you might say, not noticing that. And so healing for me is paying attention to those kinds of things and trying to do the same for other people. You know, th- th- that, I think that's a, a good definition of, of healing for me. Makes
0: sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's being aware. Being aware. Being awake to things and aware of things that maybe you would just had like like the blinders of a horse. You just have to go do this and go do that. But then you have this awareness. So yes, that's right. That's right. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense.
1: And I think about it sometimes in terms of dark and light in the more I think about that, the more that comes up. Right. And uh, I, I first, uh, that imagery first appeared for me. Uh, I was reading a Buddhist magazine and in in this article quoted uh, the Gospels and they were talking about the, the part of the Gospels where Jesus is giving direction to his apostles as he, as he sends them out. Mm-hmm. And he, one of the things he tells them is you ought to bring light to the darkness of the world and that that really kind of had a powerful impact on me, and uh then I wrote a I read a quote by Martin Luther King, where he talks about um darkness cannot dispel darkness, only light can dispel darkness, you know so those kinds of things those that imagery keeps popping up for me, and so i I sort of look at it that way and uh, try to figure out what it is I can do to create light. Right. Even in the face of lots of things that are going on in the world uh, that, uh, that creates darkness, there's still an awful lot of darkness in the world.
0: Well, for me, you create light by uh, your fashion statements. Uh, okay. Bright, bright <laughs> clothes. Bright clothes, bright mm-hmm. colors, you have a a red bag on one side and today you have like a tie-dyed bag with purple and orange on the other and <laughs> you know you, you you're not um you're not shrinking and becoming a wallflower in your daily life
1: well i, I wish i'd have worn my tie dyed t-shirt it's okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and uh-huh. as a friend that we talk about these heavy things I don't relate to you in terms of having. When I see you, I mean, do you ever think that this lady is nuts half the time? You know, I don't think of what you are aware of in terms of your not being able to uh, use a cane or whatever. Now you you have a wheelchair. I don't think of what I still see you.
1: Well, thank you.
0: You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. Uh, and 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 as as I as I do what I have to do, I don't think of myself as a survivor of mental illness or a survivor of cancer. I'm just like, I'm your friend. If you can get it, you get it. If you don't get it, it's okay.
1: <laughs> well, my <laughs> experience is that you, as you do things that that might create light in the world, you begin to see people in a different way. Yes. And uh, that, that really kind of, I had an experience that hit home for me in that regard. I was sitting in a coffee shop one day and happened to notice that I tended to judge everybody that came in the coffee shop in my mind. You know, that that's a terrible hairdo, or that shirt is horrible, you know, you know those, those little kind yeah. of things. And so I purposely made myself stop and decided I was going to try projecting love onto everybody that came in, which I think is a healing process way healing so i i don't know that it had an impact on them but it did on me and so it uh, my feelings really changed and it was it was a remarkable experience so i I try i try not to be too self too exteriorly focused and by that i mean i try not to judge or to try to tell control other people tell other people what to do disapprove of other people i try not to do that and i think uh that that avoiding those kinds of things stops me from creating darkness for myself and for others.
0: That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And, and it's something we do naturally because we just see people and we have, and so I, I like to say, oh, I'm not judging. It was just an honest observation. You know, her hair was like three feet tall. But <laughs> it was an honest observation that I didn't need to focus on. Because yeah. when you focus on, even if it's an honest observation, you are not focusing on the light that they have and the light you're bringing. Okay. I'll have to revamp that.
1: Well, it, you know, in 12-step <laughs> in programs, they have, uh, they have these little slogans, which I, early on I thought of as kind of trite, but now I realize... That they represent uh, an important truth, and one of them is, uh, don't work somebody else's program. Right, and you know that's a message that says that when you're when you're busy telling other people what to do or criticizing other people, there's something about going on inside of you that you need to tend to, and uh, and if you don't, it's a danger to your recovery.
0: Yeah, I hear that. It makes sense, but I was so very good at it. yeah (laughs) okay i'll give it up i'll give it up again in a new way i hear you like i even thought it was my job to warn you about so and so because you know you just moved to town let me tell you how they really are so you won't even bother which means you may or may not have had a relationship with someone you needed to have a relationship which was none of my business so i got you yeah, I stand corrected. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think in s- accepting your own and my own imperfection in doing whatever we do to create light, we can't do it, we can't do it perfectly. And in fact, my friend uh, John called me uh, a couple of days ago, and we were talking about the spirituality of imperfection,
0: right. and,
1: and every time we fail that creates a crack, maybe, and it's the crack that lets the light in. It was, that was what he told me, you know, and I think that imagery comes from Father Richard Rohr who uh, who talks quite a lot about the false self and imperfection.
0: I love Richard Rohr.
1: Yes, I do, too.
0: Uh, did you grow up Catholic?
1: I did. I grew up Catholic. uh went to 12 years of Catholic school, so I can speak
0: Catholic. yeah. It's just kind of like the language of my childhood. It's a good thing. So do you think that you are, um, I don't know how to say this. I'm still Catholic. I'm not that good a Catholic. Maybe I'm not as restricted as I was. And and as I have grown using Catholicism as my foundation and understanding that I can uh, participate with other people and involve, you know, I host the monks every year. I don't have to denounce what I was to become something else. You know, I was always a woman. I'm mean, gonna always be a woman. Um, I always, I spoke French, I, I don't have to give that up. I don't have to give up anything. So how do you, or, or could you address the whole thing about beyond Catholicism?
1: Well, first. You, you
0: didn't uh, reject it, or I don't know, I'm just, whatever you have to say to that.
1: Uh, uh, first of all, I, I suspect you are a good Catholic. You're you're a Catholic in the way it's important to you to be Catholic, and me too. <clears throat> I I don't go to Mass, um, anymore. Uh, there was a time in my life when I was very, very much involved in the Catholic Church, and I, I still have, uh, I guess, uh, a soft spot in my heart for, for for parts of the Catholic Church. I find myself reading a lot of Catholic literature and books because i guess i relate to it uh i happened to be divorced and remarried and so the catholic church would would refuse to, uh, to allow me to participate in some that's of the sacraments right uh, uh that's one of the things that uh i had I, I had to and am still healing about myself and that is anger about about uh that uh, withholding sacraments um but it's a, it's important for me to to try to heal that because carrying around anger and resentments creates darkness. Right. And I don't. And I've met some wonderful uh, priests, and uh, I, I recently went on an Acts retreat. I guess it's been a couple of years now.
0: A C T S.
1: A C T S. Yeah. Yes, it's a um sort of a movement within the Catholic Church, and I uh, I'm grateful for that opportunity, and it really got a lot out of it.
0: Well, as an adult, um, one of my cousins asked me why I never got angry at the church because, you know, we see things, we see the way the church has judged. I I was 12 when my father died, he died from suicide, so he couldn't be passed through church. And my, my parents had been divorced and when they married each other, so they also could not receive the sacraments. And like, I looked at her and I said, I don't know. I always knew the church was wrong. And I don't mean like totally wrong. But but when you judge that someone is good or not good enough, there's nothing right about that in a church. But I still got everything else. And, and, and now, years later, my daughter dies from suicide and she could mm. be passed through church. So they have come around so i think um for for me understanding the institutional aspect of the church is not the only aspect of the church and it's allowed me to not be embroiled in an emotional feeling towards that for my own self that's and and i didn't know i felt that way till my cousin asked me because that cousin goes to a different church now. And it's like, well, if I leave this, and I'm gonna find something wrong with the next one because they all have an institutional aspect. So, um, that's interesting.
1: Well, I think you're right, the institutional aspect, they have to behave in certain ways to survive in the world. but you know i i take a lot of the good that I, that i learned in in the catholic church and try to apply it in in my life today and um i have i have friends that are priests uh that i enjoy visiting with and one in particular uh i recently met 6 or 7 months ago who uh, also has ALS and uh, wow. we've had some uh, some good conversations and uh, he's become a, a good friend.
0: How do you view the Blessed Mother's role and, and what a lot of people are calling the divine feminine um, in today? How do you view uh, Mary and the whole the divine feminine in in your own spirituality or, or as you understand that today
1: uh i guess i've changed a little bit in that um elaine my wife and i went to a uh a retreat um not too long ago and it was a retreat about the divine the feminine aspect of the divine and it was uh it was a, a wonderful uh weekend and I think... Um, was that in I, Baton Rouge? Uh, it was in Baton Rouge, yes. Was I
0: there? Uh, was that Andrew Harvey? Yes. I was there. Okay, yeah. go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, when I say that, I'm I'm picturing the day that we went and in, in, we're in a circle. You were there with that?
0: I think that was the second day and I had to come home. I didn't get to stay the second day. But y'all told me about it. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. I forgot I was there. <laughs> I never Uh, read the book, but I have his book. Go ahead. ahead. I'm I'm sorry. (laughs)
1: Well, you know, you were talking about the uh, Catholic Church living in society today, and and as a result has to have certain structures and rules and and, and that kind of thing. Well, there's a tendency, uh, I think, for those who live in the Catholic Church, the clergy— to get involved in the masculine hierarchy, the patriarchy of the Catholic Church, which can have a negative impact. It, uh, and so I think when we went to that weekend, I think that's, that's what he was talking about, is beginning to get, bring some of the characteristics of the feminine in, into the church. And I, I think uh, Mary is, is representative of, of that uh i think you know when i when i talk about mary i picture her at the foot of the cross with other women and only one of the other apostles standing there the rest of them ran off <laughs> yeah. you know and so a woman uh, the, the courage of, of the feminine um the softness of the feminine the kindness the open-heartedness i think uh, is important, and th- those are words that I would use t- when I think about uh, the feminine aspect or Mary.
0: It makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense, and, and historically speaking, the feminine aspects of anything have never been honored. You know, we have a lot of pictures about war. Do we have any pictures about homemaking? You know, like little women, well, you know we 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 the the feminine in anything is not going to go forward and make money but it's going to hold the space for support and nurturing and i think in 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 this world today not only in uh in in uh in in faiths but but also it, it's not always about get ahead like the cats in the cradle song it's it's it, it it's about pay attention to everything, which which you're paying attention to everything now, and 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 how much richer your life is, even though you don't even have a job. Sure. And we, you know, we we tend to some of that. Some of that comes with age, but, but but another thing is what is rewarded. You know, what we reward going forward, we reward. You get a gold watch. Um, you did a number of things. There's no reward for if you did a lot of jobs and learned a lot. That just kind of passes by. But I know that in Catholicism, we have the Immaculate Heart of Mary and the Sacred Heart of Jesus as as the Divine Feminine and the Divine Masculine in terms of love and a heart. And how would you... We need to live with the balance of both. I need to be able to nurture and support but I need to have enough to go out into the world as a nurtured and supported human being so it's not like we don't have the big division of labor anymore and I've been divorced for a long time so I have to do all the manly man jobs and all the on the lady jobs too so um, h- how can we encourage each other or how can we see that we need to balance the masculine and feminine
1: I, I like the uh the imagery of the hearts that you mentioned mm-hmm. because um it's sort of the way in my own mind that I've begun to define healing as opposed to cure, and that is it seems like it's sort of a movement from the head to the heart right and uh if i if I can remember to try and live in my heart um I think. That helps me bring light to myself and to other people, and uh I go to um some of the a l s support groups meet support group meetings and um the most recent one I went to was in baton Rouge mm-hmm. and um so I go in this room and there's about <coughs> um i don't know twenty people twenty five people in there, and about half of them are in wheelchairs. And the, the the people who are sick and the people who care for them are just glowing. I mean, there's something about what they're going through, the, both the families and the patients, that brings them into their heart. And you can actually visibly see it, I think. Right. Uh, I was sitting next to a man who was in a wheelchair like mine, and he, he couldn't move anything. but. You could turn out the lights and read by his glow. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's just, uh, it's just. A, it was
0: palpable. A, it, yeah, wow. it, it really
1: is. And every time we, uh, we went, Elaine and I went to a, um, an ALS function last night. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, was the, it was the same way. You know, these, these people who are dealing with uh, terrible sickness and the people who are caring for them just there's a lot to be learned uh every time that i interact with them
0: well i I found a a sculpture a piece of art at one of the little shops where it's vintage you know kind of vintage trash my children call it but i love it and uh, and it i'm going to show it to you i wish i could show you a picture of it now but it has it has two hearts that that flow into a little opening, and in the opening has a heart that's removable. And so for me, it's visually having the masculine and the feminine, but there's no markings that says what it is, because it's all three hearts. And when I was over at that retreat, which I forgot I had been at, (laughs) and I asked him, you know, how would you draw a picture? How would you um, illustrate? the masculine and the feminine of the heart and he said you would just have a heart and that's the feminine and what radiates from it is the masculine and i'm like wow you know like of course i still was able to find one that had two hearts feeding into one but but i understood what he was saying because you know the the love is there and it loves and it nurtures and it's it holds a space for that that kindness and that caring and then what radiates from that just goes out into the world which is way saner and way simpler than what we think the masculine and the macho masculine and the let's let's overpower them let us dominate so it was just um i got a lot out of that weekend too
1: um Listening to you talk just now, uh, the masculine and the feminine is really—I I, I don't guess I really want to bring up politics, but just to say, I think we can really see the masculine and the feminine in the rhetoric of of what's going on in the uh, in the presidential election. Right. Um. So I won't go any further. Me either. Poly- <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yes. I see what you're saying. And you know, it's a choice that that we make. And it's a choice that, that, that churches all have as their core and as their essential. But then when that church becomes in a place where it has to make a stand... It doesn't always, it doesn't always do. Sometimes it judges. Sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, and so we we have to be able to separate, like, uh, church and state. We have to also be able to separate the church when it acts as a state or institution, as opposed to getting my pastoral needs met, because there's a difference.
1: Yeah, um, I was, uh, I was also thinking about uh, another little quote that created good imagery for me was um, another. It's another quote from the Gospels, and, and Jesus is saying that he um, he he came to bring fire to the earth, and uh, that's you know that's kind of sounds violent, but it, another way to look at it is fire creates light, but it also expands. Fire mm-hmm. expands things when they heat up, and so it changes the notion of what is friend, what is family, what is neighbor. It expands it to be more inclusive, right? And uh, and in, and it includes men and women. And I think right now in our country uh, we have a woman who may be president of the United States. So I think the fire is including more and more people and honoring more and more people the definition of a family has, is beginning to change totally the definition of na- of neighbor so that was a uh, I can't wait to see what else pops up when I when I have uh, <laughs> when I run into these things <laughs> and you know the more you the more you're open i think to to messages i think the the more it happens
0: i think so too at
1: least that's my experience
0: I think so too. It's kind of like you allow yourself to see beyond what you had seen, or you allow yourself to express what beyond you had allowed yourself to express, because you get more comfortable. Yeah. And if it brings you comfort, well, it may bring someone else comfort. It it may make them uncomfortable, but maybe they can get beyond that. So, and maybe gray hair helps us to be able to not really care.
1: Yeah, maybe so.
0: I, I'm happy to have my gray hair. <laughs> <laughs> I earned every strand. Yeah, I,
1: maybe I had to be, uh, maybe I had to be seventy years old instead of twenty years old to begin, to begin to wake up a little bit. Yeah, you know? I'm
0: with you. Yeah, yeah, and I, I notice often when uh, I talk to young people, and and I always say, look, I don't know more now than I did when I was younger, but I can talk about it now. You know, I I have had more experiences, but wisdom is wisdom. And I think the kids are all way wise. They just haven't necessarily chosen to understand or walk in their wisdom. But uh, I have a lot of faith in in the children. I really do, in the next generation.
1: Yeah, I have a lot of faith in the children as well. Yeah. Uh, And I think we need what they bring.
0: Yes, and I think that maybe because they don't fit in boxes, because the boxes, you know, everybody's kind of feeling an un, uneven, uh, not uneven, uneasy. Because the family unit is not just mom and daddy, you know what I'm saying? And and maybe it's some divorced people, and maybe it's and, and so as we don't have a box to put the families in, and the children are not being raised in those boxes, they're raised with more expansion, don't you think?
1: I do, and I think uh, as definitions of family and neighbor and in, in, uh, community change, I think it can also be a little bit frightening or threatening to people. And so the reaction that you get can sometimes be even violence, I guess. Right. And so the I, when you see that kind of darkness in the world, um, looking towards the light that's happening for a reason. And maybe it's, you might call it growing pains, you know, that we're beginning to move in the direction that's healing for the world. I hope so.
0: I hope so too. And and you don't have to have a big light. You can have just like a candle, huh?
1: Yes. You, <laughs> you don't even have to have a candle. You can just light up.
0: That's way cool. <laughs> I love it. Did you have anything else you wanted to share that that may have come because we're winding anything else you wanted to share or mention?
1: Uh, uh well, uh, I might just since my since my diagnosis of ALS, um, lots of lots of good things have happened in um, you know, talking about lightness and darkness. I try to focus on on light i'm not I'm not always successful because I think it would be real easy for me to slip into darkness because of, of uh, the diagnosis that I have. But the fact is that from the very beginning when I was told the diagnosis that I have, um, remarkable things have happened for me that I'm so grateful for. Um, it's uh, the, the, the first uh, ALS support group meeting I went to, was attended by me and the ALS lady and three widows, three women who had lost their husbands to uh, ALS. Wow. And they started telling me about what I could expect, and it made me a little anxious. <laughs> but, but they were so kind and so, uh, and so concerned and so wanting to help uh, that one of the women said, My husband is dead, and I have a, a ramp on my house, and I'm going to give it to you. And I said, I don't need a ramp. And she said, you need a ramp. And so (laughs) one day, uh, 15 people showed up and put the ramp on my house. 15 people from her church showed up.
0: I saw that ramp. It's impressive. Yes. I also saw your toilet. Yes. I mean, really, would you you like to just share a few seconds about the toilet?
1: (laughs) (laughs) My toilet, my toilet sees me coming and it opens up and uh, I just, and it lights up.
0: The toilet is a light of the world,
1: <laughs> yes. But let me let me just say that uh, the vet, I'm a veteran, and so the Veterans Administration is responsible for really giving me uh, uh redoing my house so that I can I can be in it comfortably. In and the, it's
0: beautiful as well as functional, yeah. None of the beauty was lost. And I have never been to a potty party before, but I went to your house just to see your potty, and that's really. I'd like to thank you for that special invitation. Yeah. <laughs> but
1: I, 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 I want to say again that the VA has been actually w- wonderful to me, and uh, I know they get a lot of bad press, but that's not my experience. And I go, I see them, you know, I go to the clinics and I go to New Orleans to the VA hospital. So it's, been, it, I'm very grateful for the Veterans Administration.
0: And I know you do coffee shops, yes. because I ran into you at a coffee shop during the week, and I said, I'm doing this podcast. Do you want to come? And, uh, and you came. So I want to thank you for being my friend and for drinking coffee and for saying yes to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Becca. I enjoyed it.
0: You're welcome. Thank you for listening to the Cado Podcast. I'm your host, Becca Begno. Matt Roberts produced the show. Thanks to AOC Community Media for the use of their facilities. For information about AOC, you can visit aocinc.org. Thank you very much. Merci beaucoup.